welcome to the Dairy Dialogue podcast and it's number 145. And it's a bit of a strange situation because if you noticed there wasn't a podcast last week, mainly due to me being on holiday this week. So I held it over so I could use it for the only Wednesday newsletter of the month, if that makes any sense at all. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and we've been having a drought here, which sounds an odd thing to say about a rainy country, but we've had next to no rain for about five weeks now. And then, of course, I booked a few days off. Rain all week forecast, including a flood watch. So, if you live in a place that has a drought on right now, I'm available for hire. So that means it's been quite a dull week with nothing really to talk about, although that's never stopped me before. Following right on from the rainy holiday week, not that I was actually going anywhere, I was just hoping to do a few longer walks, but anyway it's back to school the following week, but only for two days, which also seems a little odd to me. It's not like they haven't lost a whole load of education over the past two years. Our son seems particularly eager to get back, and I think that's because he's watched every possible cartoon there is that's ever been created, and doesn't like the music that I listen to while I work. And he's already resorted to drawing outlines of every country in the world and their flags, and doing map jigsaw puzzles. When I was younger, there were puzzles called jig maps, which are basically puzzles shaped like the country. And through the joys of online buying, you can still get them. Although some of them, because they're so old, go for quite a hefty price. I really like how a lot of items related to things like baseball can be strangely listed here in the UK and often go quite cheaply as well. Sometimes it's because the seller has no idea what they're selling, which is how I got a signed baseball of the Hall of Famer Harmon Killebrew. And it's also why you get listings like one for a Philadelphia Phillips cap or a minor league baseball cap that was simply listed as white hat with coconut trees. Anyway, at this point, we should get back on track and I'll tell you who's on the podcast this week. We have conversations with Damien Dawson, Executive Vice President and General Manager of CPG at Liquiglide, Katie Klein, Vice President of Marketing at Bobby's Ice Cream, and Dave Rademacher, Product Manager, Refrigeration at Unified Brands. And because I'm putting this together a little earlier than usual, it means no weekly update on the global dairy markets from Stone X, but hopefully they will be back next week. So let's get to the news from the last week that you may have missed. Arla Foods Ingredients has launched a new product for yogurts, Lando Lakes revealed its 2021 mid-year earnings and Bell Brands USA has partnered with DFA on a sustainable milk cooling program. EMI is adding solar to its energy sources. So Delicious Dairy Free launched a coconut farmer support program and the IDFA announced the Dairy Forum 2020 event will be in person. It's so nice to see more events going live again. We had an interesting article on hygiene in the cheese industry. Lifeway Foods is set to acquire the assets of drinkable yogurt brand Glen Oaks Farms, and Motif Foodworks has joined a partnership to improve the plant-based taste and experience. And Saputo has also published its financials. Ornua introduced a parents program. US company Novolex has acquired the Scottish compostable packaging company Vegware, and I think my favourite of the week was the news that Lithuanian chefs are at it again creating all kinds of new and bizarre ice cream flavours. I can't say that I have the urge to hop on a plane to Vilnius and check any of these out, 
but you might be enticed by moose antler and smoked seasonal berry, salad sorbet and cucumber, or maybe even by black rye bread flavour. I'll leave it with you, and you can check out the others, as well as lots more articles, at dairyreporter.com. Alright, so first up this week is Damien Dawson, Executive Vice President and General Manager of CPG at Liquiglide. If you're like me, you get incredibly frustrated trying to get products out of the packaging when it's running low, whether that's mayo or toothpaste. And of course, not to mention those without the strength to squeeze it hard. Well, Liquiglide is here to put a stop to all of that with its technology, and rather than have me explain it badly, we'll hear from Damien, who can give us all the details. All right, so could we start with a little bit of background on Liquiglide? Sure. So Liquiglide is a company that was um, created by two founders. One is a professor, Kripa Varanasi, who's a professor at MIT, and David Smith, who was doing his PhD at MIT at the time. And they came up with this invention, which is a coating that goes on solids to uh, reduce the friction between solids and liquids, uh, viscous liquids. And so that was the genesis of the company eight years ago. Since then, they've been developing and refining the technology and looking for applications in consumer goods, biomedical, and potentially in the future for industrial applications. So most recently, the company has uh, been working very closely with Colgate, and uh, we have launched a new toothpaste called Elixir in Europe in April uh, using the liquid blind technology. So the technology is a liquid coating made of natural ingredients that is sprayed on the inside of packaging to ease the evacuation of products from packaging. And in the case of Colgate, the Elixir uh, toothpaste has been fabulously successful. And in fact, uh, Colgate is planning several new launches globally uh, as a result of the positive results they've seen from this technology. And what other products would it be applicable to? So it's applicable to personal care products, uh, beauty products, and we're also working with food products. So dairy and non-dairy products that are often in packaging that get stuck and consumers have a hard time getting all of the products out. So it's not suitable for every single product under the sun, but certainly dairy products, cream cheese, those kinds of things could be a very good option. Mayonnaise is another thing we're working on quite extensively sour cream. So those are the things we're advancing on technologically-wise. And there's no interaction between the product inside the container and the technology that you've developed? Correct. We say it's non-missive, meaning the ingredients of our coating does not blend into the formulation or the product, and the product doesn't leach into our coating either. The whole concept is for our coating to stay separate from whatever's in the bottle or the jar. And in that way, the product slips out of that jar or bottle very easily. And as I'd mentioned, the ingredients are completely food safe. They're all either EU or FDA approved ingredients and in many instances, pharmaceutical grade. So even if there is a little bit ingested, as it might be with the toothpaste, it's completely safe and harmless. And we have done extensive testing and Obviously, Colgate has done extensive testing too, so we have satisfied ourselves that there is absolutely no risk or potential harm to consumers. And the technology itself, how does it actually work so that it doesn't stick to the side? So 
Basically, our technology creates a film on the surface of the packaging, and that film creates a slip between the product and the packaging, and that's basically the whole idea. Our technology is typically the opposite of what is in the package in the product. So if something is an oil-based, we would have a water-based formulation. If something is water-based, we would have an oil-based formulation. So there immediately there is a slip created and that's the basic concept of how it works. I guess it would reduce, obviously not with toothpaste, but with food products, it would reduce food waste considerably, I would imagine. Yes. The idea is to use our technology in packaging so that you can evacuate 98, 99% of whatever's in there, the food, so that A, your consumer has a great experience if you're very satisfied that the product is you know, all out of the packaging. And secondly, when it comes to recycling, it is much easier to recycle that packaging because there's little to nothing left inside of it as a result of using our technology. And the technology itself doesn't affect recyclability? Not at all. As I mentioned, it is made of natural ingredients, certainly biodegradable, and there's no impact on the environment as a consequence of using our technology and our coating. What the companies that you're working with think of the technology, because obviously the end consumer is buying slightly less of their product, I would assume, if they're not having to replace it as often. Well, in fact, you might imagine that, but it's quite the opposite. When you use liquid glide coating inside packaging, you evacuate the product much more easily and much more quickly And so if you could imagine in your refrigerator, a bottle of mayonnaise or a bottle of ketchup that's in there, and you know, there's a little left and you leave it in there and you shake it around and you squeeze it and squeeze it and squeeze it. You know, if that all came out right away, you would finish using that package and you'd go buy more, more quickly. So in fact, it's hundred percent the opposite of what people might imagine. You use the product more quickly. You're that much more satisfied that you're getting every drop out of it. And you go on and buy and rebuy. And, and, you know, it also breeds a brand loyalty because you know there's a level of satisfaction by using that brand of products because you know you're going to get everything out of it each time. And as far as the companies themselves in terms of all of a sudden now the Colgate customers have an entirely different product and it's coming out easier, how are they communicating that with the end consumer? So there's a lot of media, both on social media and in regular advertising, to the effect of um, using this product. And their tagline is every last drop, you know, getting every last drop out of it. So that's the message that they're conveying in the context of their advertising. We have trademarked a term, every drop, and we are allowing customers to put that on their packaging if that's something that they would like to do. And the logo is very... uh, indicative of what we're trying to do is use the product up to the very end and empty everything out. Is that, I guess, one of the selling points when you're communicating with potential customers is that sustainability and lack of waste? There are a couple of main things, Jim. So one obviously is the consumer experience. Using packaging and a product that is liquid glide enabled is quite unique and quite different. And I can speak from personal experience, it is really quite revolutionary. Secondly, obviously, you have the sustainable story because you're emptying out the package and you're able to recycle it. But thirdly, quite often, brands are forced to fill slightly more or their packaging is slightly larger than what they claim because they need to be sure that the customer is getting out exactly what they're promising. So let's say it's 250 mLs, you know, they may fill 
10 to 15% more, their packaging might be slightly bigger because they don't want to be perceived to be selling a product saying it's 250 mLs, but in fact, in practicality, you, you can only get 230 out because of the way the residue sticks it. So all of that's a long way of saying you could potentially resize your packaging to be more precise, and you can avoid the necessity to overfill each time because you know your customer is going to get 100% of the product out of the packaging in each instance. And in terms of the application of your product, do companies need to put in any extra equipment in terms of how their products are filled? Yes. So there is the need to install a spraying system, typically right in front of the filling line, because you need to coat the inside of packaging, preferably just before you fill it with whatever product you're putting in it. So this line is not extremely large, but you need to make space for it. And basically, you load the packaging into our line, automated. It's picked up a very fine film of our coating is sprayed on the inside of the packaging, you know, fractions of a millimeter thick. It's then reintroduced into the filling line. It's filled with whatever the product might be. It's capped, it's packed off and ready for shipping. So, you know, our technology allows our customers to fill between 60 and 100 pieces per minute. We are able to speed that up to get up to as many as 300 pieces a minute if that would need it. But yes, it's certainly for many instances and many applications, 100 pieces a minute is quite acceptable as a line speed as it relates to how fast they can fill and load packaging into the line. And I assume that it's cost effective for the companies to do this? It is cost effective because it allows you to price up your product. We've done extensive consumer studies as has uh, Colgate in the instance of the product that's on the market and have proven that comparing side-by-side packaging with or without our coating, you're able to price up quite significantly. And I'm saying in the double digits, 15, 20% without any risk of losing market share and without uh, any risk of reducing brand loyalty. In fact, it increases brand loyalty despite the fact that you're pricing up something to that degree. So it's really a way of reimagining your product, making it premium, and still maintaining your margin and your brand loyalty at the same time. And how long has the Colgate one been on the market? Since uh, early April. So what's reaction been like to that? I mean, obviously people talk on social media. That's probably where it's measured the most, I imagine. Yes, it's been extremely successful. It very quickly in a couple of countries in Europe jumped to the top of the list in terms of the number one seller. It has, in fact, increased their market share in many countries in Europe without cannibalizing their existing Colgate business. So it's been very successful. And as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, they are already calendarizing several new launches in other parts of the world for next year as a result of how popular and how successful this launch has been. So obviously, the fact that you're in the US, you can supply this worldwide and it would certainly be something that is applicable to dairy companies and food companies with a lot of food products. How do they get in touch and how do they learn more about the technology? So yes, we manufacture our coating right here in Massachusetts and we ship it to wherever it's needed around the world. As I mentioned, you need a very minute amount in each package. So we can produce a huge volume and that can satisfy you know millions and millions of bottles a year. 
they could contact us through our website. We have an inquiry questionnaire that they can do. They can contact me directly. And uh, certainly we'd love to talk to anybody that's interested in exploring our technology and seeing how it might be a fit for their brand. And we're also very interested in talking to contract manufacturers because many brands rely on contract manufacturers to do the execution of their manufacturing and filling. And so they will be an integral part of how we go to market for many brands. And I think you have an example video on the website as well, don't you? The difference between normal and with the liquid glide. Yes. Yes. So we have many videos with side-by-side of packaging in different product formats. So food products, beauty products, demonstrating exactly the same product with the exactly same ingredients, one package with our coating and one without. And the difference is quite remarkable. It's really stunning. And again, until you have one of those packages in your hand, it's hard to explain the satisfaction that you feel when you're using it because the level of the product goes down completely uniformly. The amount of product comes down quite precisely. And as we call it, every drop, you get every drop out of the bottle or the jar. And there's nothing more satisfying than that for many consumers. Okay, great. Is there anything else that you'd like to add? Jim, I should also mention that Liquid Glide allows brands to shift products traditionally packaged in one format, let's say a, a jar, for example, into another, maybe a squeezable bottle, thanks to the Liquid Glide coating. You know, often products that are fairly viscous, that don't flow easily, cannot be put into a bottle, but thanks to the Liquid Glide coating, this is now something that is definitely a, an option for brands. That's a great new innovation, and if you're listening to this via our website, you can also see a video of it in action. We're going all in on innovation this week because Unified Brands has created a new and very interesting product that relates to something most of us enjoy, and that's pizza. The new product is the Cheeser Station, and it's designed to help pizza restaurants minimize cheese waste. So to tell us more about it is Dave Rademacher, Product Manager, Refrigeration at Unified Brands. Okay, so I guess to start, I wonder if you could give me a bit of background on the company Unified Brands. Unified Brands, we are a food service equipment manufacturer. We offer premium branded products that typically offer a unique solutions. The brands that we have are Randell, Avtech, Growin, Power Soak, and then also Capcold. What those brands cover is uh, refrigeration, fabrication, ventilation, wear washing, steam cooking, and then also cook chill systems. And what products do you have that are relevant in the dairy and dairy alternative space? Currently, the only unit we have that's really specifically targeted as dairy products is, is the new Randall Cheeser Station. What prompted the development of the Cheeser Station? We supply pizza prep tables. It's probably one of the largest parts of the business for the Randall brand, which is what I'm the product manager for. We supply probably the majority of the pizza prep tables to the top pizza chains in the country here. So we're really close to the pizza industry and we just saw an opportunity to solve a common problem for the pizza operators, cheese and the cost of cheese, because that's most often the most expensive ingredient on the pizza. We've seen a big trend over the last 10 years of folks looking to add scales to their prep tables so they can help control their cost and improve their accuracy of the topping application. So really what we did is we focused on the cheese being the highest cost ingredient. Then we really just took that accuracy 
of weighing the cheese and we just took it a step further by creating a station that can both weigh the cheese and also capture any excess. And how long did it take to develop to the point where you put it on the market? It took approximately two years from the initial concept and uh, vetting it out, some field trials, and then development of uh, bringing everything together. Could you sort of go through what it is and what it does? Yeah, so primarily it's intended to reduce waste and improve your accuracy, which in turn will control your costs. There can be a very good ROI on these. The unit itself, it's two foot wide and it has a preparation area, which is a rack system. The preparation area is a rack, which is built on top of an integrated scale system. And then that's located directly above the cheese holding area. So you grab your cheese from below the preparation area, and then you apply it with the use of the scale, which tells you how much cheese you're putting on the pizza. But uh, most importantly, any of the cheese that doesn't land on the pizza, it falls right back into that refrigerated holding area below the prep area. So so you're getting 100% utilization of your cheese. We're Traditionally, you'd be putting the cheese on at the prep table. So any cheese that doesn't land on the pizza, it ends up either on the work surface of the prep table, which eventually ends up on the floor and then in turn ends up in the trash. So that's really where we took that a step further to reduce waste so we can capture all the cheese. Are there any other benefits to the equipment? In addition to the benefit of the accuracy of the application, which the scale provides, and then the waste reduction by being able to capture any of the cheese that doesn't land on the pizza. Some of the other benefits we've identified is that it moves cheese off from the prep table. So that allows more topping capacity in the prep table. So you can add some new unique ingredients. And then also the cheese bin in the cheeser station is a very high capacity. So you can put 25 pounds of cheese in this thing. You can get a lot more cheese on the line compared to what you would hold in your prep table. So it can mean some reduced labor as well because uh, you're not replenishing the cheese as often. And how does it help with sustainability in terms of the ability to reduce food waste? Yeah, so like I mentioned earlier, it uh, captures any of the cheese that misses the pizza when you're putting it on. Traditionally, you know, a lot of pizza places, they operate very quickly. They're they're trying to get the pizza through the oven and out the door to their customer as fast as possible. So, you know, they don't often do that with a lot of care and finesse when they're putting the cheese on. So a lot of it does actually end up on the table or on the floor afterwards. So, you know, at the end of the year, you know, just a few shreds here and there on every pizza. But at the end of the year, that can really add up to a, a lot of money. Obviously, you've done tests on the machinery in order to be able to figure out how efficient it is. Were you able to measure, like, you can save X percentage per pizza or per day or anything like Um, that? Through all the field testing and everything that we've done, we figured approximately 3% savings just by capturing the cheese. And if folks aren't currently weighing the cheese when they're applying it, Uh, We figured adding a scale to the operation and capturing all the cheese that so you're not wasting any on the floor can be five to six percent. That's still quite a lot when you consider that, yeah, it's not not only the biggest ingredient, but the most expensive. So definitely uh, savings there. 
And does it also help with, I would assume that if you, if it's a self-contained unit, that there's no cross-contamination? Yeah, it certainly could potentially help with that cross-contamination just by separating the cheese. Uh, I know a lot of folks that may not eat even eat dairy, they still like enjoy their pizza. So it certainly can help separate that by putting it on a completely separate table as well. And I suppose that it would also apply to making pizza with plant-based cheese alternatives? Any sort of shredded type cheese uh, would work well in this unit. If you're a restaurant that was doing vegan pizzas as well as regular pizzas, would it be possible for a company to or a restaurant to have two of these working in tandem, one with plant-based and one with dairy, or would that prove to be too cumbersome? You certainly could have multiple units lined up. I mean, it's intended to sit adjacent to the prep table. It'd probably just depend on their mix and how the flow of operation is. Plant-based does tend to be more expensive, so it would be an even greater savings there as well. It would likely be a, even a larger advantage for someone using a higher cost cheese than traditional. For sure. And in terms of installation and use and cleaning, is it all very easy to use? Very easy to install. The unit ships basically 100% assembled. It ships on casters. You can pull it out of the crate. You don't have to put the casters on yourself or anything. There's really nothing you have to put onto the unit once you take it out of the packaging. It's ready to go. The casters themselves, they're adjustable. So they have approximately one inch of adjustment. So you can level the unit to your adjacent table because we all know there's no restaurant kitchen floors that are level. And so it's pretty important to level it up to your adjacent prep table so you can make a good transition sliding it from the cheese station onto your prep table. So we made that easy by putting some adjustability into the casters. As far as cleaning and sanitizing, the cheese well is really easy. You can pull that rack assembly right off. The cord that plugs the scale system in the rack, that's a quick release by the push of a button. So that rack system comes right off. That's really easy to clean. And then once that's off the unit, the cold well that holds the cheese bin, that includes a drain in the bottom. So it's very easy to wipe that down. You can throw a bucket of sanitizer in it. And then there's a valve at the front of the unit behind a hinged louver that's really easy to access. So super easy to clean, sanitize, and then you just open the valve and rinse that out into a pan or a bucket. And then the other thing is the compressor that we put in these to cool the cheese bin. We actually face that towards the rear. And the reason we do that is because these are typically going to be next to a dough table. So there's going to be a lot of flour and stuff in the air. We intentionally face that towards the rear so the compressor is not pulling as much flour up into the unit. So it doesn't need cleaned as often. When it does, though, the back panel has a lift out panel, no tools required to access it. So very easy to clean it off when that is required. And we actually have a alarm built into it. So when the compressor senses excess heat from flour dust buildup in the condensing unit, it will alarm you. So you know to look at the compressor and make sure it's not time to have it clean. And in terms of cost effective, obviously it varies from restaurant to restaurant, but how cost effective is it for restaurants to have this equipment, given the fact that you said it was a good percentage of savings on lost cheese? Yeah, you're absolutely right. It depends on the restaurant. It depends on how much cheese they use, the cost of their cheese specifically. But we have some operations that, you know, we've 
evaluated their numbers and we see a ROI in as little as six months on the unit. It can really pay for itself very quickly. And we actually have built a ROI calculator that's out on our website. So folks can go out there and plug in their actual numbers, like labor dollars, cost per pound of cheese, how much cheese they use per week. And it'll calculate that out for them and just tell them what their projected ROI would be on buying a unit. Is it just available in the U.S. at the moment or is it available anywhere? Currently, it's North America, so really U.S. and Canada. We have intentions of expanding it further, but uh, initially, that's where we have it available. Now that it's available, what's the feedback been like for companies that have either tried it or that have installed one? Everyone who's been field testing them and using them, they seem to really love them. Kind of question why something like this hasn't come along sooner. (laughs) But a lot of excitement about it. And since we launched it last month, there's just been a lot of feedback and great interaction around it. So really looking forward to uh, getting more into the market, getting more feedback. And we'll be taking one to the Pizza Expo show, which is upcoming. So we look forward to seeing the feedback from those operators as well, which is a great crowd to get feedback. And you know, a lot of real end users uh, seeing the product. All right. Where does that take place and when? In Las Vegas. And that is the 17th through the 19th of August. Okay. So that's coming right up. Does that include everybody from sort of small producers right the way through to the big franchises? Yeah. The folks that attend the show, it could be someone just looking to start up a pizza shop or it can be, you know, the big guys that have thousands of locations you get quite the variety of folks or even folks that have existing restaurants and they're just looking to maybe add pizza to the menu. And some people just come just to experience it. I mean, there's a lot of great equipment, great ingredients. Uh, A lot of the cheese companies will be there. I would say probably pretty much every cheese company is there. Next, we're talking to Katie Klein, who is Vice President of Marketing at Bobby's Ice Cream. As you can well imagine when we do interviews, we don't just connect and get right to the questions, we generally chat beforehand. And so this interview started, as many do, with a discussion about the weather, which at the time of the interview was actually warm in Scotland, although not southwest US kind of warm. But as we were talking about the warm weather, it just seemed to naturally segue into ice cream. So that's where we'll enter the conversation. And I think most people associate ice cream with summer anyway, so that's good. Mm -hmm. Unless you're in Phoenix, and then, of course, it makes sense for a year-round dessert. Yeah, absolutely. And you get Santa Claus in 120 degrees. Mm. (laughs) Well, not quite, but I will tell you, we do have holiday flavors of mochi ice cream. So we have the peppermint candy, we had gingerbread and pumpkin spice, so... We're, we're all about celebrating the, the holidays with ice cream, too. For sure. Th- do you bring those back year after year, or do you just do we like do. Yeah. Yeah, there's seasonal flavors. So you'll start seeing pumpkin, you know, right after the whole back-to-school season. So you'll see pumpkin at the end of September, and then we'll roll out the peppermint candy and gingerbread. Um, and we're also doing a red velvet cake this season for holiday as well. So we like to bring some of those holiday flavors and into the mochi ice cream, and it gives you know, something new and interesting for, you know, the consumers to go to the shelf for. Do you do other um, seasons as well or other events? 
You know, we have some rotations that we'll do at Costco. So we have so many different flavors. We have, you know, well over 20 flavors. So we have five or six that are core flavors that are on the shelf every day. And then we'll bring in some seasonal items, whether it's for a summer rotation at Costco or as I mentioned on the holiday, you know, and it's something that we plan on doing in the future is just innovating around um, some of these seasons because we have such a, a wide range of flavors that we can work with and ice cream is such a great base to explore different flavors and so we're able to really innovate on on the flavor side as well we're just getting ready to launch we have a pina colada which is like great for the summer we have a churro so yeah it's definitely one of those things that makes it fun throughout the year to you know keep things fresh and interesting on shelf do you have like difficulties with that when it comes to regions because a few weeks ago we did i did an article about how different flavors some flavors don't do well in certain parts of the u.s do you have to deal with variations much not a lot i mean a lot of our flavors are still pretty i would say i want to say mainstream but pretty widely known but we do see some shift and some flavors sell better in certain regions than others um, you know, like our, our passion fruit will sell really well on the West Coast and East Coast, but maybe not so much in the Midwest. So we do see some of those shifts, um, but it, I think it also really depends on on the flavor. But we're also very mindful of if we have more of a unique flavor, where where we'd be launching it to. I wonder if you could give me a little bit of background on Bobby's. Bobby's ice cream has been, you know, quite the success story. We started as a small little ice cream shop in Honolulu, Hawaii, back in 1985. And, you know, it really took off and it was all about premium real ingredients and the super premium ice cream. Um, we used, you know, a higher butter fat, a lower overrun. So it is really that premium ice cream that set us apart. And the founder got into mochi ice cream in the early 2000s, and the mochi ice cream part of the business really took off. Now, Bubby's is the number one mochi ice cream player in the natural channel, um, which is really exciting. So we have nationwide distribution with Whole Foods, we're in Sprouts, we're in Costco, and a lot of other premium retailers like Wegmans. And, you know, we are one of those fastest growing privately held companies in the U.S. And like I mentioned before, you know, we really pride ourselves on having, you know, a wide variety of flavors as well. You know, both some of the traditional mochi flavors like green tea and strawberry and mango. But we have some more unique ones such as blood orange and passion fruit and chocolate espresso. So really trying to appeal to a wide variety of palates. I know one of the things that we want to talk about today is our new vegan ice cream, and we use a coconut milk base. And, you know, just like our, our regular mochi ice cream, you know, we only use super premium ingredients, real fruit, and we're also gluten-free, non-GMO, and all of our vegan products are also a certified GMO by the GMO Project Verified organization as well. Is that something that consumers have been demanding or is it really just looking at the stats and saying, well, this is really taking off. We've got to get in. It's a little bit of both. I would say, you know, we see, especially if you think about like where we're selling in these premium natural retailers, you see, you know, non-GMO becoming more widespread. And the non-GMO project is one of those third party uh, verification bodies um, that really kind of puts their stamp on some of these products. So we see consumers, you know, really making it more of a nice to have, but we see it more in the future being more of that need to have is just making sure that, you know, the products, they know where the ingredients are coming from. 
And, you know, with everything else in our portfolio, we're using all natural ingredients. So just making sure that our consumers know that there's nothing artificial in our products. Often when it comes to vegan flavors, there's only one. So it's good that you're expanding beyond that and doing a variety of vegan options. Yeah, and that's one of those things, you know, we really want to, you know, bring our ice cream to as many people as possible. And even the the vegan community, whether it's for a dietary constriction or just a lifestyle choice, we started with a strawberry and chocolate were our two first uh, vegan flavors. We've seen a lot of success with those. And so we've expanded. So now we have, you know, we added mango to the mix and we have a lot more flavors that we're working on too. So we're definitely going to be innovating more in the space because we also see, you know, the rise of the whole dairy-free movement, you know, across the board, but really it's starting to hit the frozen novelty space as well. Uh, and how are they going so far? They're going really well. If you look at where we're distributed, like take Whole Foods, for example, you know, we have our vegan flavors, you know, right next to our our regular dairy. And, you know, we just launched a couple of the new flavors in the retail box and they're doing just as well as I would say, like some of our core flavors in our portfolio. So we really see that this movement, you know, it's just really kind of taken hold in Whole Foods and some of these other premium retailers. Um, But we really see that growing. So I think, you know, we're very happy with the growth that we've seen so far, it's still relatively new, but I think it's already those first indicators that there's definitely a lot more room in this space to innovate and bring more products to market. You know, all the indicators that we've seen too, and in the market and in the research is just indicating that there's still going to be so much more room for growth. Like we see that the whole non-dairy market here, especially in like frozen novelty, you know, it's growing at double the pace of the traditional novelty space. So I think, you know, as it grows, I think more and more companies are going to hop on this movement and have an even wider offering for that audience as well. Do you think that some of that is not necessarily people that are on a plant-based diet, but that people are perceiving it is healthier or absolutely you know according to uh, mintel i was reading their ice cream and frozen novelty reports they say a little over 40 percent of people buying vegan and plant-based products are doing it because of a dietary restriction but that's meaning like the vast vast majority are actually incorporating it into their everyday diet mostly because they do see as kind of this health halo around the plant-based foods. Um, But I think people are, you know, they'll pick up like their regular ice cream, but then they'll also try like a coconut or an almond based um, frozen novelty treat. And we also see that people are buying more plant based burgers and cheese and, and all these other, you know, traditional like dairy products. And I think there was like a a recent stat that about 50% of the US households are now buying a vegan version of a food too. So I think it's, you know, some people have it because of their dietary restrictions, but I think a lot of people are, are just doing it because of this health halo that they see around the product. Sure. And is that extending to other frozen desserts in the space is more plant-based versions? Yeah, you know, it started really in the pints. That's where we saw a lot of the innovation and in, in ice cream pints. You know, you have like So Delicious and you have a lot of other brands out there that are featuring plant-based ice cream. And, you know, we've really kind of seen that shift its way and move into the frozen novelty set, you know, and, and that's where we live with our mochi ice cream. So, you know, we, we came out with the two vegan items, you know, last year, and then we've expanded to more flavors and put them in a retail box this year. But we're seeing more in that frozen novelty space of more of these plant-based offerings that oftentimes sit right next to the dairy, just like what we're doing to really kind of offer more variety to a wider range of consumers. And what about the price point? Are you able to keep it 
close to the dairy version? Yeah, on our products, our vegan is line priced with our dairy. So we were able, you know, to work with our, our suppliers and, you know, we made sure that we kept that same kind of value proposition that we have for our dairy for our non-dairy consumers as well. I think that's always been a big consideration mm -hmm. because if the vegan version is, you know, $2 more than the regular version, people might hesitate a little bit and not try it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, we do want to take out those barriers as much as possible. I mean, again, you know, there there's a certain cost when you have the premium ingredients and, you know, you don't use anything artificial, you know, it can definitely drive those costs up. But, you know, like we we do what we can to try to keep it even with the rest of our dairy line, too. Are the comments that you're getting that it's on par with the dairy versions? Yeah, I would say for a non-dairy product, it is by far, you know, we've done a lot of taste tests internally and talking to consumers. You know, we really pride ourselves on ice cream and the premiumness of our ice cream. And so when we developed the non-dairy, you know, we decided to use a coconut base and we wanted to get that creamy texture that we're, you know, really known for on our dairy. So is it exactly like our dairy version? No, I don't, I don't think you could ever get it exact, but it's pretty close. And I would put it up against any non-dairy product out there in terms of getting that, the creaminess of the ice cream. And, you know, and when you combine that with the texture of our mochi, such a great combination and a different textural experience. But again, a lot of work went into not only the dough, because we had to make that, you know, a vegan version of our dough as well. But on the ice cream and the creaminess, even though you technically can't call it ice cream, it's frozen dessert. But for all intents and purposes, we try to get it to mimic the real dairy as much as possible. How long did it take to get that right? Because with the base for a plant-based, you can choose between soy, oat, coconut. Mm -hmm. There's just so many. How did you get to that? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. We actually started with soy. So I would say, you know, it took us a little over a year to really get it right. You know, we started with a soy base. We had that and it was really good, but we also saw the shift of kind of away from soy and more into like the coconut and the almonds. And, you know, right now you see a lot of like oat and, and cashew, but we decided to go with coconut because of the amount of fat that's in there. And then that fat actually gives the creaminess texture of the ice cream. So we actually worked closely with Whole Foods as well to, you know, make sure that we got the texture right. So, you know, it did take about a, a full year, I would say, from start to finish. We went through numerous iterations. And also, because it's not just the texture of the ice cream, but a lot of these non-dairy bases, they impart a certain flavor. You know, so coconut gives a coconut flavor. You know, oat would give an oat flavor. So it's also balancing the flavor component of the ice cream to make sure that you get the right flavor in the finished product. So we have to develop it. So it's not like you just replace the dairy with a, a coconut base, but you also have to change the other ingredients to make sure you have a very balanced flavor profile at the end of the day. So what are consumers looking for at the moment? I assume you do trend watching. So what are you seeing as those trends? Oh, absolutely. Well, it's interesting, you know, with COVID, everybody, you know, really shifted a lot of people's eating habits and people indulging a little bit more. And we still see that consumers, you know, they want to indulge, but now they want to be doing that mindfully. 
And, you know, we're just in such a great spot for that because our products inherent by nature are those portion controlled. So we see consumers, they still want to treat themselves and they want to feel good about it, um, but they don't want to overindulge. And so that's where we're seeing a shift away from, you know, some of the pints and like these larger scale portions to smaller formats, just like our mochi ice cream. So that way they can still have that really delicious snack but they can feel good about doing it because it's more in this, what we call permissible indulgence category. So, you know, we see a shift towards that where people, they'll still be buying frozen novelties and treats moving forward, but they might be buying smaller sizes and doing more portion control to try to find that new balance in their diet. Um, We also see new textures and again, like new flavors, you know, consumers I think are always looking for new and unique flavor combinations. And I think that's what's so interesting about mochi ice cream, because you can have these different flavor profiles working together. You know, you can have a flavor in the dough and you can have a flavor in the ice cream and coming together can kind of create a new flavor profile overall. So, you know, we see consumers going after, you know, the smaller format and they are looking for more premium snacks as well. So we see premium offerings, you know, new textures and again, you know, new flavors as well. So going beyond, you know, your chocolate, vanilla, strawberry into some more interesting flavors. Like we've had a lot of success, like with our, what I mentioned earlier, like our passion fruit and our blood orange. And it just gives like a a different flavor profile that you're not used to seeing in the frozen novelty set. These are all individually packaged. Is it recyclable? I mean, I wonder how important sustainability is to both consumers and to your company right now. Yeah, sustainability is is definitely something that we've had our eye on and we're making strides to become more sustainable. Our packaging and our single server individually wrapped, we use um, over 70% less packaging than our competition in the mochi ice cream space. So we try to, you know, reduce the amount of packaging as much as possible. And in our retail box, we have a clamshell inside that is recyclable and then all of our cartons are recyclable as well. Um, and we do have you know, some innovation on the horizon that we're, we're not able to share yet, but we do have some more innovation in, in both like packaging forms that kind of move us further along that sustainability route because we do see that as being very important to our consumers. How do you address a lot of these trends in terms of creating new products? Do you engage with consumers a lot through social media, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, we're pretty active on on social media. So we do like to listen to our consumers. We also have a really great email database of consumers that we, we engage with. So We've done everything from sending out, you know, certain surveys to our email list, you know, asking about, you know, maybe like new product ideas. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, we actually did a social media campaign where we let consumers choose the next flavor of mochi ice cream. So that was exciting. So we actually had a pina colada was one of the flavors that we developed. And that was that was voted on by our consumers on social media. It was this uh, Make My Bubbies campaign. So we do like to engage with our consumers because at the end of the day, you know, without our consumers, you know, we wouldn't be in existence. So we want to make sure that we understand, you know, what they're looking for and what they would like to see next. 
One of the things that I think really sets us apart and I think has really attributed to a lot of our success, like as I mentioned, you know, now being the the number one mochi player in the natural channel, is we actually have a different kind of texture in our mochi. We get a lot of people that have come up to us and like, oh, you know, like I've tried mochi in the past. I'm I'm not really a fan. And it's like, you know what? You need to try ours. It has a different texture. It's um, different ice cream. And they try ours and they love it. So it's like even the people that have had mochi ice cream in in the past and it's like oh you know that texture is not really for me you know I really implore them to try Bubby's mochi ice cream um, because it does have a unique outer layer of the mochi and you know we have a lot of research that shows that consumers prefer that texture profile I think between that and you know as I mentioned being the gluten-free nothing artificial you know using real ingredients and of course like that super premium ice cream you know I think that's what really kind of sets us apart from the competition out there how do you get people to if they do have an aversion to a product and they say they've tried it and don't like it I mean in the past you could go out and do sample sessions at Costco Mm -hmm. or Walmart or whatever but with the pandemic that kind of dried up how do you convince people to give it a try because yours is different yeah you know it was it was really challenging you know especially in the in the throes of the pandemic you know there have been some places here that have eased up a bit like we were actually just in uh, california doing some sampling at the beach um, the past couple of weekends. So we have been able, because there's nothing better than like getting the product in somebody's mouth. You know, that's truly is like that moment of truth. When we were unable to sample and we couldn't demo, you know, we relied a lot on, on communication through our social media and our shopper programs on, you know, trying to, to convey the difference and, you know, giving consumers different offers to try our products. But again, you know, it's just really challenging from a marketer standpoint, you know, during the pandemic where a lot of these tactics that we typically would use you know, they, they were taken away, you know, for obvious health reasons. So we're just hopeful that, you know, soon we can put this pandemic behind us and we can get back out there on the streets and introduce more people to mochi ice cream. Because we don't have that market update this week, that's it for another week. I do have a couple of interviews already done for next time, and I'm even headed out to do a video again for the first time in goodness knows how long. Although that will only happen if I can find all of the equipment in my office that hasn't been used since the last trip, which was to the Salon du Fromage in Paris in February 2020, so around 18 months ago. I guess time flies when you're going nowhere. I know for a fact that there are a couple of pieces missing from the equipment. Well, they're not exactly missing. They're in the house somewhere, but that means that it may well take another 18 months to find them. Anyway, I'm looking forward to going and doing some filming, and now that the Olympics are over, it's only another three years to the next one. Seeing as there were some 12-year-old medalists this time around, that means my son could be there. That's if drawing maps or Lego assembly become Olympic sports. Or we move to a country where there are so few inhabitants that he's a shoo-in. So I hope you will join us again next time and that you have a great week ahead. Stay safe, take care, and as always, thanks for listening.